You're listening to Out of the Box, a place for marketers to get inspired, get going, and break out of the box. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Out of the Box, the marketing podcast exploring out-of-the-box approaches to marketing and growth. Now, today on the show, we have Mike Brooks, who is SVP Revenue at uh, Weatherbug. Mike, thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So, I mean, to, full disclosure to our listeners, um, this is the second time Mike and I are doing this. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the first time the sound couldn't keep up with our awesome and excitable conversation. So we're going to so much content. you guys. So much content, too much for the recording to handle. Uh, so we're going to do it all again for you guys. Um, uh, and so let's start, since we haven't done this yet, Mike, do you want to sort of introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about your slightly strange journey from academia <laughs> to ad revenue. Uh, how, how does one go from getting a master's in applied economics to running the revenue organization for Weatherbug? Absolutely. You have, I mean, I mean, the number one key I can suggest is avoiding finance jobs. That was my number one goal out of grad school. So, so I'll give a little bit of the backstory. Um, so I, you know, I graduated college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I studied international studies uh, and econ undergrad, but you know, after graduating, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I got a job in uh, alumni relations, doing email marketing, my first role ever in marketing. Um, while I got my master's, and you know, because it was for the school, they paid for the master's. So that was, you know, it was a heavy math and statistics masters. It was like using statistics to uh, apply to problem solving. So I loved it. But, you know, it kind of funneled people towards the finance jobs. So people were being recruited for consulting and finance and banking. And for me, the the lifestyle and the culture wasn't a really good fit. I'm a little bit more uh, low key than I think uh, some suit and tie jobs that I might have been funneled into. So to be honest, after graduating grad school, I found AOL at a Baltimore career fair at Hopkins. We hit it off and that's where it started. So it, uh, I would say it was completely random. I had no idea I wanted to get into digital and finding AOL at a career fair is what started me as an analyst. And as after six years of evolving at AOL from an analyst to the first mobile hire to the first mobile app hire, and then once we uh, once Verizon acquired us, I took on a role running the preload business and some native on device things for the carrier. And just the exposure to mobile and growth uh, was uh, in- incredibly, incredibly exciting and fun for me. And, and I realized for me, I loved AOL, Verizon, Yahoo, and I learned so much. I was there six and a half years. Um, it was t- it was time for me to kind of take the reins myself. So I really wanted to try be having a more diverse role at a smaller company versus running just mobile app uh, install business for AOL. So two years ago, made the jump to uh, Weatherbug, and mm-hmm. you know we have faced some interesting challenges, but have you know more or less been wildly successful. Have grown fifty percent in the, the past two years, and we are off to the races. So it's an exciting mm-hmm. time to be doing what we're doing. Um, but uh, it was certainly a, a windy road to get here. So, so tell me, let's let's talk about Weatherbug a little more. Um, I mean, I'm assuming most are familiar, but for people who aren't, um, why why should someone be downloading Weather? Let's do a bit of growth for you. Uh, <laughs> why should someone be downloading Weatherbug today as opposed to any other uh, weather app? 
the competitive set. So I would, I'll tell you why I love it. For me, what the, one of the things that we are best in class in is lightning alerts. So for me, I don't go boating and swimming that much, but I love golf. So for me, the biggest thing that can impact you as a golfer is uh, knowing the proximity of lightning and every strike that's happened in the last 30 seconds across the country is very important for understanding when we're going to be able to play the rest of the day and when we're not. So for me mm -hmm. as an individual user, I love it specifically for golf. But people come to us for all sorts of reasons. You know, forecast accuracy, um, fire, air quality, allergies, very specific hyperlocal weather versus I would say well, some of the more uh, big box weather apps uh, out there. But, you know, from a mm -hmm. hyperlocal perspective for me, I kind of hook into two or three features that really fit my lifestyle. And that's what's mm -hmm. made Weatherbug super valuable for me long term. I think that kind of it goes to um, something which certainly applies in in marketing. And it's actually I repeat this a lot. Actually, it comes up a lot. Um, it's Seth Godin that says, you know, the more specific you are, I'm sure other people have said it too, but he says it most memorably. Um, the more niche you go, the more specific you are in your offering, the more likely you are to really catch on with, uh, with users, um, as opposed to kind of going mass market, uh, and hoping to appeal to everyone and then potentially losing everyone as well, because you're not really appealing to the specificity of people's experience and what they're looking for. So I think there's definitely something in, um, going for specific features or hyper local or you know going for the golfers it's a marketing strategy for sure yeah, um absolutely but uh tell us about um your job your role svp revenue it's a that's quite a nice broad title where does uh where does what what's in there what what constitutes uh, being svp revenue at a mobile app company today Absolutely. So, so I can speak to Weatherbug and how we manage and structure things. Um, but we are, I would say, generally an engineering and product-led organization. You know, mm -hmm. of the 40 people on the team, 10 are on the revenue scene, uh, side, and everybody else is in product and technology. So when we think about what rolls into the revenue team, it's really the overall business. So there's a couple components, right? We have direct sales. We have programmatic sales. We have partnerships and business development. We have M&A. We have ad ops. We have user acquisition and growth. So for us, I would say, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but you know, we're lucky in that having a small team, we can have growth and monetization in the same meeting every day. Mm -hmm. So you know, for, from our perspective, we're a small team. We have uh, some excellent leaders uh, pushing. I, I think we're, you know, Weatherbug, I've been very impressed by how we've been market leaders in a lot of things, both on the monetization and growth side. So um, it's been it's been impressive what we can do with the small team. But within there, it's kind of money in and money out is how we define the revenue org. Mm -hmm. So so you you therefore um, are sitting atop both revenue and growth, uh, and which is not I mean, I think it's happening more and more, but it's not necessarily the default uh, setup for a lot of mobile app companies, uh, even Correct. if it might make the most sense. Uh, so how do you sort of see the relationship between these two pillars of a, of a business? Absolutely. And, and again, I think we are advantaged because they can sit so close. Uh, but, it, you know, if you think about the revenue slash monetization functions and growth functions in a team, you know, academically, they're, they're part of the same machine, right? Revenue is kind of the gasoline and growth is the engine. So when you're actually when you're actually running the team, though, uh, 
they, they can't have the same goals from their day to day, right? Because monetization is going to be focused on things like optimizing header bidding and, and growth is going to be spending time on new platform partnerships and optimization and uh, overall working on that equation. So it's hard on the, the ground floor to make sure everybody, everybody's going to be working on different things for the business, but it is incredibly important that they understand everybody on the team understands that they're part of that macro equation of how we do business, right? We, every, every, every day, the business comes down to two functions and that's ARP DAO or average revenue per daily active user and then DAU, so the total number of people showing up every day. So w- with those two functions, uh, everything in the business follows. So by rolling up to those larger macros between the two teams, but having a meeting twice a week of exactly how that equation is coming together has been very, very important. So having people look at the same numbers all the time and understand why people are working on what they're working on uh, kind of gets everybody to have a stake in the growth loop that's important for any app to be successful. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you, you started talking about this already. It sounds like the way to get to disparate teams with, with uh, let's not call it, I guess, disparate goals, but um, different day-to-day activities to work better together is to unite, to get them on the same kind of page when it comes to overall goals uh, or mission, maybe you might call it. But sort of other other practical tips you can talk about or practical ways that you guys um, help these two teams who also might have different types of people uh, in them, different sort of personality types or, or professional skill types. Uh, how do you get them to sort of work well together? And is it sort of, is there a physical element here? Do you make sure that they sit together? Do you create squads uh, that, you know, have both um, revenue and growth people uh, in, in them? Right. I would say that, uh, you know, we're lucky because we're 10 folks and the sitting together thing, Weatherbug has been a distributed team for 10 years. Right. There is no, there is no sitting together anymore. Right. right. So today, certainly not. But, uh, you know, even a year ago, you know, we were always lucky because we we were always a small team. Um, Mm. But, you know, one of the things that as I kind of grew up in the app world, one of the incentives that I think was always misaligned was forever people were gold off of installs, right? If you were a user acquisition lead or you were a growth lead, you were being measured by installs. And look, I can't, I haven't spoken to a lot of folks uh, about that specific structure, so I can't speak to if they still do that today. But I think that is one of the inherent wrongnesses, uh, inherent wrongs from you know the past seven years of mobile app uh, growth. And that is something at Weatherbug we have never and will never do. So we will never incentivize anybody to drive installs. We won't even incentivize to drive retention. Even the growth team is gold off of revenue because they mm-hmm. have just as large a stay in it with retention as monetization mm-hmm. does with you know increasing CPMs. So we've never gone to any derivative comp metric mm. other than overall revenue to the business. I mean, I think I think it's also about increasing accountability. Yeah, um, it's you know it's not. Um, it's, a, it's also a little bit like saying, you know, you're not here to do a job in a silo. You're contributing to the success of a business. And that's a, that, that requires an understanding of a complex picture that's bigger than how many users did you buy today. Right. And at the end of the day, user or installs don't matter. Right. At the end of the day, we make money by having retained users 
but we mm-hmm. we we get we get more for investment by making more. So by by getting rid of I would say superfluous metrics and making sure everybody understands how we think about the business as a business, that has been wildly successful. Is not not comping or moving towards anything other than how is the business growing revenue and retention wise. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about metrics. You've mentioned Opdow and Dow. Um, how, what other, if any, you talked about superfluous metrics, uh, what other metrics, if any, are you looking at when you're making key decisions and when you're measuring success? I would say we look at three metrics every day. One of them is DAU, which we talked about. And I would say the, the only thing we do is we really break down ARPDAO because we're mostly an advertising business. So we can evaluate it based on uh, ECPM and impressions for DAU. So those are really the two micrometrics that we look at from a monetization side to understand because CPMs change with the campaigns that are, are coming in and out. But the impressions per DAU is a function of ad serving technology. So, you know, whether or not it's a partnership conversation or a screw we have to tighten, you know, there's considerable growth to be had in just your internal economic operations. Mm-hmm. And that's been that's been exciting to see. But but again, we, we really only break down the ARP DAO to those two functions and then every day we get an email saying here's how those three did and those three equal revenue and we literally write out that equation every day and that goes to the whole team nice and um leaving aside the fact that i think we both agree um that it makes sense to have these two functions work more closely together um what if you had to choose right you're a new business um, you can't necessarily sort of set it up perfectly from the start. If you had to choose, what do you think would come first, growing a revenue or growing your user base? Revenue, 100%. I, I think that if you start with your user base first, um, you can build what might be an unsustainable model. It's not that you, you don't know if it's unsustainable until the business actually catches up to it. Mm. But when you're when you're spending the money that you make, that's a different level of like bootstrapping and empowering. So for mm-hmm. example, what I would rather us take a million dollars in profit and put it into UA than uh, spend UA hoping we're going to make the money back, like like two million mm-hmm. in UA and hoping we'll spend the money back. I think, and it might be a little bit conservative, but for us, we kind of see the writing on the wall with, if you look at what's happened to a lot of SoftBank partners over the past year, a lot of mm-hmm. folks who have had a ton of money and have invested a ton without necessarily the revenue backing. Um, you know, we're a 25-year-old company, a 20-year-old app, so or web and web and web app. So we've mm-hmm. been doing this a while. So we don't really have to make those kind of gains. But that scares me. If, if Weatherbug ever turned into that kind of organization where, you know, we were able to 20x our investment the next day, I would be more concerned than happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, although it's yeah, I don't think it's a it's a given. So, what do you sort of think is the ideal? Let's say you're a much bigger organization um, and you're not just ten people. How do you think it makes the best sense to structure revenue and growth uh, within an organization? So, I would say you know I'll, I'll answer the question by kind of explaining how Weatherbug is organized today, and then as we grow where I think the resources are going to be needed the most. Um, So today, you know, there's direct sales roles, including direct sellers and account managers and ad ops. We have uh, two folks focused on programmatic, only one on BD and one on data and reporting. 
So when I think about the challenges of you know the future, and, and we'll talk about those, especially with iOS 14, data flows become very, very, very important. So when I think about the revenue team, who I think the next three hires will be, they actually won't be revenue generating roles. They'll probably mm. be operations and data engineering. I think I think the future of advertising and mobile, et cetera, you know, with with the with issues with IDFA and identifiers, the transmissibility of identity and targeting and attribution becomes much more of a science. And the technical prowess you need to partner with other companies becomes much higher. So I think that we'll increase direct sales. I think the especially on the monetization and growth side data flows become much more important. At the same time, I think a lean growth team is important. I would rather, you know, I would rather folks spend, you know, have a team of three or four focus completely on big high level partnerships and then test a couple things through. But I think that especially a, a marketing growth team, if you're getting to the 50s, 60s, you know, you, you certainly need to have your revenue together at that point. I would be worried if I'm on a growth team <laughs> and we're, we're pre-revenue and there's 50 of us. I yeah. think you can scale up a very large organization with four people focused on growth, surrounded by uh, data scientists, but more data engineers. Mm -hmm. And what about differentiation? Uh, we talked about going after a niche audience, um, but where the bug does sit in a, in a super competitive space, how do you guys go about um, differentiating yourself uh, and also sort of differentiating your growth strategy or innovating in your growth strategy? Absolutely. And I'll tell you exactly the, the playbook. Uh, because we're so small, we rely a ton on inbound emails and calls and LinkedIn messages of people who want to work with us. So we don't mm. have a huge outbound team. Our strategy, rather than doing a closed RFP, you know, growth partnership world, is to get up on stage and say, here are the things that are important to us. We focus on creativity and kindness and flexibility. And I think to be honest, particularly in our space, that goes a really long way because our competitors have been out there a while. And to be honest, they're a little bit old school and can be hard to work with. So, for, so you know, we differentiate in the B2B marketplace by being great to work with, by being creative and, and being honest with partners and saying, hey, if you do an excellent job for us, not only will we tell all of our friends, we'll tell everybody we know in Ad Exchanger. Uh, and <laughs> And, but but it works the other way, and it's if and we never say this, but if it's you screw us and you do a bad job or you're lying to yeah. us, you'll still end up in ad exchanger. <laughs> so so it's like a nice a nice agreement that we have going into it of a social contract, and we don't get we don't really get people trying to cheat us because they know that's how we roll. So that's been yeah. from a partnership selection strategy. The getting up on on stage has has been really great, and and. You know, we've had a ton of super positive inbound things that have turned into our biggest partnerships ever. Wow. And what about when it comes to, um, well, I want to go a little off piece here. Um, okay, let's and I'll ask about <laughs> if we haven't already. Uh, <laughs> and instead of talking about uh, revenue and growth, um, talk about another mm, and growth, which is I'm, I'm calling brand and growth probably would more classically be known as kind of brand versus performance. 
Um, mm-hmm. How do you see the, the relationship between those two things? Does brand, do you have a brand function in your growth team? Um, when you're thinking about kind of positioning the app and standing out with consumers, is there a messaging branding component there? Um, or do you really sort of, uh, the bulk of success comes from just really smart growth strategies? I would say the big growth fun- growth step functions in Weatherbug's history recently and historically have all been branding related. So when I think about what is going to bring Weatherbug from 14 million users to 140, that's about people being made aware and comfortable with the brand. I think mm-hmm. that in general, especially in our world, brands brand is way under-resourced. I don't know if I would ever put like a brand person versus a performance person on a marketing team, but I would say that, especially the way we look at things, attribution is very important, but I would say we we think about how people think of Weatherbug today and how they have historically and how we should be making investments that even if you can't attribute in Coachava that it came directly from this newspaper article or this TV uh, spotter or this, uh, you know, Newsweek article, whatever, um, there's still incredible, incredible value to that. And to be honest, attribution is kind of a religion anyways. You just kind of have to believe whatever you pick. If I think about the way Weatherbug thinks about growth, the nice thing about not caring about installs is you don't care about installs, you care about revenue. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, all of these growth folks even with iOS, you know, there'll, there'll, there'll be challenges with iOS monetization, but compared to their peers who are, you know, based on installs and, you know, you're still buying media, you're still driving the same kind of thing that you were, whether or not you can track it. Um, I think, you know, we'll get into what the near future looks like. It's going to be tough for folks who aren't focused on revenue because everything else mm. gets really cloudy. Yeah. Um, so b- before we dive down into the depths of iOS 14, uh, let's let's talk more generally about the industry and, and how you see um, trends you see picking up steam um, in 2020. Obviously, there's been a bit of a curveball uh, thrown at everything with with COVID. Um, but what have you noticed um, happening more and more and that you think is we're going to see more of uh, in future? You know, I'll say probably the same thing a lot of folks say in consolidation. I, mm-hmm. If I look at the way Weatherbug has spent its money since, you know, this is the third budgetary year I've been through here, even though I've only been here two and change. Um, mm-hmm. We're spending four times as much money today than we were when I got here. And we are doing it with 40% of the partners. So, mm. so long term... I think that, you know, maybe people will continue spending on Google, Facebook, et cetera. But outside of those two relationships where people understand your business and how to grow it are going to be the key differentiator. So it's not so the world of it's going to be self-serve and I'll figure it out myself and I'll be efficient. I think people are going to realize that if you can build strong relationships with a couple folks who really have your best interest at heart. And I think to be honest, you you guys are great partners to Weatherbug in that sense, and we put you in that bucket. Um, yes, that is... when's that exchange article? I'm, I'm waiting for it. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's the future, right? The future is having QBRs with six partners, all of them getting more than a million dollars, and 
us saying, how can we partner to bring the, the gospel of Weatherbug to the users on TikTok, Snapchat, Pinterest, uh, publishers, you know, the list goes on and on. That's mm. what I think the world is going to. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's a little, it's kind of encouraging. If you are among the chosen few, uh, it's encouraging. Uh, now, now let's do it. Let's, let's talk about um, iOS 14 and, and Apple uh, and, and your take <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on the changes uh, they're making around IDs and, and, and privacy. Absolutely. So what I would say is I kind of have two different hats on because Weatherbug is owned by Ground Truth, which is a mobile location DSP. So part of me, when I think about this, I think about it from the two perspectives of a DSP and a publisher, but for, for the purposes of today, I'll focus specifically on publishing at Weatherbug. Um, you know, I would say the IDSA news and uh, IDFA going opt-in with iOS 14 is the biggest piece of news in mobile in the seven years that I have been in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a it is a fundamental change. When, when really what it is is it's making tracking across apps and sites opt in by app, right? So that's the big mm-hmm. functionality change. What that means ostensibly is the supply of IDFA goes down because not everybody's going to opt in. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, our, ourselves included, you know, numbers like fifteen percent opt in are flying around. So if you're looking at a world where 30% is already limit ad tracking and the existing world is only 15% of what's left on iOS, is that identifier enough to be kind of the gasoline to the engine that we talked about earlier? Uh, I don't know, but there's a lot of variables within that of how can publishers increase access to IDFA, how are attribution and uh, general media partners going to change in the next year? And look, this is, this is the first of three things chronologically, right? This is the IDFA being uh, changed. There's still the cookie announcement for early 2022, where on the website, uh, Chrome is going to mm-hmm. disable web, third-party web cookies. And then there's the, the question of what Google's going to do. So the impacts, what this is really is, this is the beginning of a big shift in media. I don't think anybody's going to go under in the next four months as iOS 14 comes out. But I think it means that whatever you were running towards from a growth perspective, from a monetization perspective, you have to be very, very thoughtful that you're running towards a place that you want to be going. Um, and that that's going to change in the next two years, right? The focus on third-party data versus first-party data. The question of how do we get our ad buying clients attribution? There's a couple big questions as to how is it going to impact us? But, you know, we've boiled it down to two major buckets, one being user acquisition and one being monetization. If you want to dig into it for a second, uh, I think Iron Source has two huge opportunities in front of it, in addition to everything else it has going on. But this news makes Aura and this makes uh, Supersonic Studios both mm-hmm. incredibly valuable, like 10 times more valuable than they were a year ago, even though we yeah. love Aura and have been partners for a long time. Um, so, so, you know, I think that of all the companies out there, you you guys are actually in in decent position. I think that if you don't have a lot of O and O and you don't have a lot of scale, um, you know, Apple is basically saying, if you're not the same company, 
you're not going to be able to use this data without getting consent. And the idea is you're probably not going to be able to get consent the way that they have engineered it. Yeah, you know, they, they control the prompt. So we're probably not going to get a lot of opt-ins. <laughs> okay, moving on to brighter brighter questions. Uh, last <laughs> one for, for, this, for this episode. Uh, what is the most out-of-the-box marketing you have ever done yourself or seen done? So, so I will will talk a second about what one of the things that Weatherbug did that I thought was just really, really special from a marketing test perspective. Um, and that is we had a partnership with the New York Post to do a CPI campaign in print. So I don't know <laughs> if that's ever been done before, but one where- Or since. <laughs> or since. Actually, you know what's funny? I have seen it done since for a couple mm. other digital products, but not yet apps. Um, and to be honest, it was it was very effective. It was in the beginning of COVID when uh, prices in print were way down. And, you know, we've, a lot of my, uh, the old AOL crew is now in the leadership at New York Post. And we put together a pilot of today, you know, probably need some mechanic twisting on the business to make them super happy long-term. But for Weatherbug, like, just be, you know, the majority of our budget gets spent in digital and mobile. And that's fair because that's where users are, but we are untouching the rest of the world. So when we can start combining some of the strategies and things that make us successful that we know in digital and bring those into the real world, like print or even TV we've tried, that's, that's going to unlock a ton of growth and a ton of scalable growth, I think, that we've been ignoring for a long time. Interesting. It reminds me a little bit about I I don't know if I'm correct here, but a little bit about um, a little bit of Eric Sufet's article. I don't know if you've seen it on media mix models. Um, yes. And sort of bringing in those quote unquote sort of unmeasurable uh, channels uh, into a more cohesive kind of growth strategy, and just understanding that that you know it will have an an impact on on incremental um, growth. That is exactly how we think about things, and. Like I said, we get on stage just like this one and say, if you guys have great, funky, out-of-the-box ideas, hit us Let up. Us and, know. You know, we love partnering <laughs> with you guys on that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Um, well, you heard it here, maybe not first, but most latest. <laughs> uh, Mike, thank you very much for doing this again uh, with oh, us. Uh, this was I want to say I, I I'm pretty sure this was as fun as as the first time, uh, and uh, and yeah, thank you, thank you everyone else as usual for listening. Thank you, friends. It was great, great spending time here. Thank you so much.